Welcome to Cerebronas. I'm Yvette, and this is episode 21. Normally, we're two Latinas from working class immigrant families navigating law school and work life and bringing y'all raw, critical analysis of law, current events, and personal politics. Why? Because we want to break down barriers set up by elite institutions and democratize knowledge. Unfortunately, Cynthia's finishing up her last week of work at the New Orleans Public Defenders, and she wasn't able to join us for this episode where I interviewed Regina Merson. No worries, though, she'll be back for the next. As I said, on this episode, I interviewed Regina Merson. She's the founder and owner of Reina Rebelde, a makeup line by Latina for Latinas. She shares her journey as a Mexican immigrant who eventually ended up going to Yale University and UChicago Law School, practiced as a bankruptcy attorney, and then ended up owning her own makeup line. This interview was really refreshing and needed for me because it reminded me of the importance of setting our own personal goals devoid of any influence from our family, friends, expectations, as well as any kind of other external validation that might be motivating our desires. I hope you enjoy the episode and here's the interview. here with Regina Merson, who's the founder of makeup line Reina Rebelde. I, we wanted to start off first with asking you to tell us about your story of migration from Mexico to the U.S. and how that eventually led you to attend Yale and UChicago Law School. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I think this is such a cool concept. Um, and can totally relate to obviously where, where you guys have been, having been in your in similar shoes uh, a long time ago, but nonetheless, meaning law school and, and trying to find your way professionally. Um, so sure, I mean, I I, I was a, a young girl, I was born in Guadalajara, and um, my parents got divorced when I was when I was rather young, and my mom was a single mom for many years, and we moved here, um, kind of, we were kind of going back and forth, um, she ended up remarrying an American man, and that was kind of what triggered our move here, but um, initially we were just living in Mexico, and we had kind of, kind of come back and forth, and then it was determined we were going to move here, um, and the transition was really rough. I never wanted to leave Mexico. I loved Mexico. I was very happy there and very kind of accustomed to Mexican culture and the way of doing things. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing I initially really struggled with the most was was really the language. It was a very ironic thing where I got here and was required to take some sort of evaluational testing regarding my intelligence, and then based on that, I was skipped grade, even though I didn't speak English. Oh, wow. So, That's amazing. Yeah, and, and so, but it, it actually ended up being terrible, because oh, no. I was sort of thrust into um, a more of a, an environment where I was a year younger than everybody else, I didn't speak the language, and then kind of underwent some sort of humiliating rite of passage about... I don't know, not understanding certain words, and I was teased mm-hmm. a lot, um, and I 
I, I hated the experience for a while, but yeah. it, it, it proved to be very important for reasons I'll explain in a second. Um, I felt, you know, I guess I felt sort of shame and mm-hmm. a little bit of a self-consciousness around my inability to communicate. Um, and then, in addition, culturally, I had a very hard time with this idea that family time was not the way it was in Mexico, meaning yeah. everyone didn't come home and have lunch at 3 o'clock, right? right? Had lunch right. <laughs> at, at school, which was basically, in my opinion, like breakfast. Um, <laughs> we were having lunch at like 11.30 or something. Yeah. So I remember very early on really resisting that and saying, you know, Mom, you're going to have to come pick me up and take me home to have lunch, and then I guess I'll come back. And she was like, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so it was just these little things, but what I what she did to comfort me or attempt to comfort me was she made me all my favorite like Mexican, you know, foods and brought you know bags of candy with her like bitingos and things like this that I loved. And so off I was sent to school and to add insult to injury, I got teased terribly for this like Mexican cuisine that I was bringing to school in my lunch. Oh, I think this is um, like the archetypal immigrant kid experience. I went through the same thing and felt shame as a result. Yeah, and so I went home and I was like, everybody eats this like peanut butter situation and <laughs> lunchables and this disgusting stuff. And, you know, and it was it was just so awful. And it was, you know, that combined with, and I think as Latinos, we're not really the sense that you go off and you spend the night at people's houses when you're like seven years old or nine years old. And, you know, that was kind of foreign to me. Yeah. Um, and there was just a lot of pressure to sort of integrate very quickly. And, you know, I think that is all to say that all of those experiences were scarring at the time, but ended up being so informative and so important to where I went after that and where I am today. Um, and I think, you know, shame is such a powerful emotion. It's a terrible yeah. emotion, but it can be such an incredible motivator. Um, and for me, the way that that ended up motivating me was that, like, I figured out within a matter of weeks that nobody was going to be able to tell me what I could and couldn't be mm. on the basis of, um, my inability to speak the language, you know, yeah. and it, it became this like internal drive, even at the age of, you know, nine and a half to not allow that to be limiting for me. Um, and it, and it actually kind of wasn't just like, Oh, I need to integrate and integrate quickly. Um, it was more of a, you know, how, how dare you? And I think a lot of that came from true Latina, like Mexican pride of, coming to this country and leaving a country I was so happy in and really not wanting to be here. And so for me, that kind of concept, you know, all the, all the nicknames that kids call you, um, all the questions you get asked, does your, you know, does your mom like mow lawns and this ridiculousness of, uh, of childhood cruelty. But um, I didn't get it. I really didn't get it. I was like, you, you nobody understands how amazing Mexico really is. Nobody mm-hmm. gets it. Um, and so for me, it was tremendous pride of, I'm not going to feel ashamed because I'm hanging on to a language and a culture that I think is fantastic. Um, and so I'm not going to feel shame about that, but I'm also 
not going to be made to feel less than. I'm going to master this experience. So that really drove me very quickly into being kind of a, a total book nerd. I, I channeled all of that energy into being a great student. Um, mm. And, you know, and then and the, I was pretty much like the origins of how I ended up doing a lot of things that I ended up and, um, you know, attending Yale and I believe you attended Yale as well, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. How did you, how did you envision that for yourself? I, I have a kind of funny story of how I ended up applying, but did you, is this something that when you were in Mexico, you thought about at all, or is this something that you came to want to do after you came here and after experiencing this bullying and being motivated, what, what exactly yeah. allowed you to envision that for yourself? Cause it's, it's a big deal to imagine yourself as a Latina woman at a place like Yale. Right. And now, you know, I didn't, I didn't really start thinking about it until probably I was a teenager. Um, but, you know, once I sort of took it upon myself to learn English and do as well as I could in school, all, a lot of things normalized for me. And I think it just gave me such a tremendous sense of self-confidence Yeah. Mm-hmm. that that became this kind of door opener for me into imagining other things that were possible. Um, you know, my, my parents certainly were not people that ever expected me to go to Yale. Nobody in the community did. It was something that, you know, I think even as a child, it was just realizing the power of your own ability to visualize and motivate yourself to achieve things. And then even in very small ways, as I started doing really well in school and better and better in school, it almost seemed like, okay, basically anything I can set my mind to, I can probably make happen. So when I was about in middle school, this this idea of an Ivy League education started kind of seeping in of like, okay, is that possible for me? And I think I was doing well enough in school. I was like, why not? Why wouldn't it be possible for me? Um, And when I applied, I really applied because I wanted to major in history, and it had the best history department that, you know, for what I I was looking to do, I had dreams of, yes, being a lawyer, but potentially also being kind of a professor. Yeah, same. I feel like that's like our little little kid self of loving education, right? And finding solace in education. And I, you know, and I think a lot of it is because in many ways, the United States can be and is a meritocracy in the sense that if you do do well in school, you know, the pearly gates of some of these institutions can open up to you. They can give you the credibility that um, you might not otherwise have. And I felt it was really important to not deny myself some of those opportunities, even if it might not have been like the environment anybody thought I was going to end up in per se. Um, so for me, it was, it was incredibly academically driven and it was also driven by a sense of wanting to go, you know, to me, college is really, it is really educational, but it's really also this transition gap period where you're going from being a child to being an adult. And so it's kind of a safe place to be productive and learn and enhance your life while also learning how to grow up and be more of an adult, right, relatively safely. Um, And so I was very 
interested in leaving Texas and I was absolutely, you know, positive that I had to go, um, go away. And I think that, you know, a lot of Latino families really try to keep their kids close and I understand why. And I think for me, uh, my mom in particular was very happy that I was pushing myself to go live in an environment that I knew was going to be really uncomfortable, but it was the only way I was going to learn. Um, yeah. is by pushing myself kind of out of the nest. So that yeah. was really important to me. And so my, my visualization of Yale was this amazing place where anything was going to be possible and I was going to be surrounded by people that were completely different from me um, in a lot of ways. And I thought that that was going to be a really valuable personal experience as well. What, did that end up being your experience, or were there things you were surprised by in, in the culture of Yale? I'm sure that was yeah, all know, kinds of culture I, shock there coming from Texas. Yeah, coming from Texas, you know, um, I, was, I was really, I think, disappointed. Um, <laughs> not, by, not by Yale. I uh, loved every other Yale, but I was oh, really okay. disappointed by I was attitude. disappointed by Yale, so I'm just no, going to no, say no, that. I think of some of the... Um, people, some of the students who arrived with, you know, similar hesitations, similar sense of, and I don't know, maybe your experience was different. I graduated in 03, but there was, there was a sense of, there were a lot of people there that, that were never really sure they belonged there. Mm -hmm. And I think that was unfortunate because what I learned early on is maybe I didn't go to you know, the top boarding school in the East Coast, but I never felt that I didn't deserve to be there. And I think some people felt very intimidated by what was going on around them and, and were unsure of whether or not they belonged there. And I made a decision very early on to not think of it that way because I knew that was going to be really self-limiting. Um, and I did, you know, I, I participated in a lot of the Latino, like, student associations. I remember going one time um, to a meeting and there was a lot of talk of like other, right? And we are other, but it's but it was it was not productive and it wasn't constructive. And I was very kind of disheartened by that a little bit. Um, and I had a roommate who was in a different kind of affinity minority group and she was very open-minded when she arrived and then as she got more integrated into this group that's meant to be kind of a support group she she be, she alienated herself from the rest of us because we weren't we weren't like her so for me it was very much a balancing act of like I can be who I am and be very proud of who I am without without intentionally closing doors because again from a very early age my whole point in going to Yale was to force myself to be around people that were different than I was Um, because that's the only avenue for change is to grow from the people around you and so I was constantly pushing myself to do that to have friends that were totally different than I was Um, I wanted to learn from those people and their experiences and so my experience at Yale was very much about not just taking academic courses or completely outside of my comfort zone but doing things um, with people that were out of my comfort zone. And as a collective, I can say I had just a tremendous experience because 
I feel I left that place with a better understanding of myself and a better understanding of a lot of different types of people. And so that was, that was kind of how I got there. Yeah. I think a lot of what you're saying really resonates with me too. I think I also took the same approach of like, you know, I, I might not have gone to the top boarding school either. I might not have had been prepped for this since I was age five, but I've done a lot of amazing things and I was able to fake it until I made it and, and was able to garner self-confidence in myself. But I, and I, I hear what you're saying about how there are people who kind of, who feel like they don't belong and never, never kind of get over that feeling. And then maybe graduate without having taken full opportunity of the things that they might have been interested in going in. Um, I did see that, but then I was also mindful of my own privileges that allowed me to better acclimate to the school. Um, I went to a private school. It wasn't, it wasn't Andover or Exeter, but at the end of the day, I was able to get the quality of instruction that allowed me to thrive pretty early on there. Um, so I just always think it's important to be mindful of how those things might impact different students' experiences as well. Oh, absolutely. And I think, but I think the interesting thing too is I felt I was there, you know, there weren't a lot of Hispanic people when I was there, um, and women at that. I think I was also there to be a really good steward of what that meant for people that had never met somebody from Texas, had never met somebody from Mexico, um, and show them that, a lot, you know, to dissuade them from necessarily digging their heels on some of the stereotypes around it. Mm-hmm. And, and so, and, you know, and I think I did that. I mean, my, ref- my friends from Yale really reflect a very diverse group of people, um, which, which, like, I'm, I'm very proud of because I feel like they've learned a lot about you know, our culture through kind of their friendship with me and vice versa. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, and I think that that's one of, I think going to a place like Yale and maybe you experience this, there's a lot about not feeling, um, worthy that, um, you know, at some point I think with reflection and time, you look back and you realize that no, and I, and I did some work with the admissions department when I was there. And so I had visibility that I think really helped me while I was there of how rigorous it was yeah. and how well that group of people knows who's going to do well at that school. Right. And I remember feeling like nobody should feel like they don't belong here. Yeah. There's a reason you got picked to be here. And there are a lot of people that had to endorse that. And nobody, no matter where they come from, should should feel that um, they don't have the stuff or they don't deserve to be here. No one's here. No one's here by accident. And I, I really believe that that's true. Now, my experience at the University of Chicago was completely different. Okay. Uh, because with all the mind expansion that happened at Yale, I got to the University of Chicago and it was highly, highly uncomfortable. It's a very conservative law school. Yeah, I've heard. Very conservative, very male heavy very um, like very libertarian right 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 and talk about like minority females there were you know five of us um, oh my god in your class oh there were more than that but it felt that way yeah and of yeah. all of the different minority segments um hispanics were definitely the very 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 tiniest percentage right um and that was 
crazy because it was such a hardcore juxtaposition to the liberal attitude of Yale, mm-hmm. where everybody's opinion mattered. Right. And you get to Chicago, and this is just the law school. The rest of the school is not necessarily like this. You get to the, the law school, and there were, you know, guys that would come up to us, uh, me and like a friend, and say, you know, I didn't, I'm not paying all this money to be here to listen to your liberal feminist agenda in class. Oh my God. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. You know, and it was just like, wait, what? Like, what? how could you say that to me? Uh, and so, wait, that's you know, absurd was, because you all were also presumably taking out the same amount of loans. So it's like, exactly. well, we're not here to listen to your anti-feminist right, agenda. libertarian agenda <laughs> and whatever else you think is going on. And it was so uncomfortable for me that after my first year, I spent the whole summer really deliberating whether or not I needed to transfer. Wow. Be- because, because socially and politically, it was not a place that felt... Um, welcoming in many ways and you know it has a a reputation a very well-deserved reputation of being unusually competitive and you know and after kind of going back and forth the the conclusion I came to is you know there's a a different way of looking at this which is you've had this amazing privilege of going to a place like Yale where you your opinion felt very important um, or at the very least it was respected and there's something to be learned about the other side of the world by being around people who, again, are just completely different than you in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I forced myself to stay. And I really suffered through it personally yeah. for the first year and most of the second year. Mm-hmm. And then by the middle of second year, you know, I had this higher feeling about it, you know, of, of a sense of like, okay. So everyone isn't warm and fuzzy, and that's okay. And, <laughs> and maybe this is great training for what's to come. I'm sure and it was. great training for working with people, which was inevitable as a lawyer, working with people that are going to necessarily be totally different than you, and you're going to have to learn how to work with them. Right. And by the time I graduated, I was just so grateful that I had stuck with it because it turned out to be a perfect balance to you know, the Yale experience, it was a whole other experience. So there was no duplication of like efforts and exposure, but it, it, it was really, really profoundly important to have both Mm. for me. And I think it made me a more well-rounded person, but it wasn't easy and it wasn't comfortable. It was really uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. That resonates with my law school experience as well. What made you choose bankruptcy law? So I didn't choose it. I wanted to be a transactional attorney, like, day one, right? Because mm-hmm. I knew eventually I would maybe not want to be in law altogether. Right. So I got hired at the boom of the economy. I mean, literally, people were throwing offers out of bonuses. Like, you would you would walk away from these things with, you know, 15 offers from top firms around the country. It was insane. And so I got hired to be a Lehman Brothers um, real estate attorney. And at a firm, but Lehman was their large client. And okay. that was in 07. And about the middle of oh, my wow. first year, Lehman, Lehman starts having problems. Yeah. And I start working on the real estate component of those problems. And 
we, my firm ended up putting them in bankruptcy in September, and I got a call like the next week saying, you, you know, our big client is now in bankruptcy, so if you want a job, you're gonna have to be a bankruptcy attorney. And I was horrified. I was like, wait, 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 wait. Like, <laughs> I've had all these plans, and I'm gonna do transactional work, because then I'm gonna go work for a bank, or I'm gonna go transition to, I don't know, something in business, and if I go to bankruptcy, it is so highly specialized that no one's gonna wanna hire me outside of this law firm world. And I don't even know if I wanna be a law firm lawyer. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the economy, people were getting laid off left, right, and center. So I kind of said, okay, well, I'll go do it and then see what happens. And when the economy gets better, I will reevaluate. And of course, that never happened because when you work at one of these huge firms, you know, everyone's in crisis mode. You know, we were billing 3,000 hours a year, and there was no time to go look for another job, there was no time to sleep or see your friends, let alone like. <laughs> figure out career step number two or three. Right. If they're just, you know, so it, the next thing you know, you kind of pick your head up and it's been five years and there you are. I read that so, you took a year to journal and soul search and figure out your next move after the law. So does that mean that you completely left the firm and then for a year just thought about it because you didn't have time? No, no, no. That started happening. So, um, I became, I, 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 became licensed to practice law in 07, and then a few years later, I basically had like a midlife crisis when I turned 30. Um, because I just disliked the job so much, yeah. and I was so disappointed. Yeah. Um, I was really, really crushed, because at this point, this dream of not only being like a successful immigrant had, had been something that had been on my mind, but being a lawyer, and I was a lawyer at like a very, very, um, you know, prestigious law firm, and mm-hmm. I had accomplished everything that I wanted, and I hated it, mm. and I had such a hard time, A, admitting that, yeah, and and then, like, B, living with the consequences of, of all of the implications around that, so um, when I turned around 30, I, like, I started going to see a therapist, because I just couldn't make sense of how I was by what was going on and she she started suggesting that I journal about to try to get some clarity mm-hmm. so I, I did I started that and then you know that led to kind of getting some clarity on where I had landed how I had gotten there what felt right about it what didn't um, and you know and I, I think people think oh it's just a job and I think you and I both know it's not just a job yeah. Being a lawyer is no longer just a job. It is a full-time, seven-day-a-week um, existence. And right. it really monopolizes your whole life. Especially and at so a corporate was, firm. Sorry? Especially at a corporate firm. Especially at a corporate firm. And that, and, and I think a lot of, like, my parents' generation didn't quite understand that because that's not how it was when they were our age. Right. Right? And now it was like, I was, you know, we were asked to sleep with, blackberries under our pillows and being called back to work at three in the morning and days where you were sleeping under your desk and it was you know so it wasn't just a job and I wasn't trying to be ungrateful it was like a whole existence and the, and that job had taken over my whole life and I didn't love it enough to I think justify the price I was paying for it and but you know how do you as a like a Latina immigrant the people 
people wondered whether you were ever going to learn English, let alone become a lawyer. Get there and look back on your life and say, gosh, after all that, thanks for all your support. That was Teddy not loving this. <laughs> like, very difficult conversation to have with yourself and very much of the kind of internalized fear culturally of everyone's going to be so disappointed in me. Right. And I've already exceeded what everyone expected me to do, and now wh- how, what do I do about this? So that was where a lot of the journaling came in, and it was happening while I was practicing law. And it really took me, I mean, two two years of being very like diligent about that and reading a lot of different types of books around grappling with this like existential crisis I was basically having about who I was and whether or not I had the right to change my mind. And I think that's one of the disservices um, of being A, a female, and B, being an educated female, is that there is not a lot of empowerment or dialogue around the right to change your, t- your mind. It's kind of like when yeah. you get to Yale, you're not allowed to say, God, I don't like this about here, mm-hmm. right? You never feel, you just feel like you're just lucky to be there, and you're not allowed to criticize Yeah, you're right? supposed to be so grateful the whole time. Right. And so, um, and so for me, it was just this slow revelation that it, it's what I wanted at the time, but it turned out to not be a great personality fit for me, and that was okay. It didn't invalidate or nullify anything I'd done to get there. But it took, you know, a couple of years of like that, and then of course was the question, and this is all going on internally and privately behind closed doors. It was not, I mean, I had a lot of friends that knew I hated what I was doing, but it was, it wasn't, um, it wasn't bad. And then I think there's this horrendous misconception of you, you're making great money, and so that should make it okay. Right. And, and it's just like, yeah, it, it does for a while until you realize that it's your life and no amount of money is worth being really unhappy, especially when you're working seven days a week. Like, you have to like it more than 50% of the time if right. you're going to work seven days a week. Right. That was my opinion. Um, and so then, you know, it was kind of like, okay, well, but, but what is it about it that I don't like? Is it just the law? Is it the beta law thing? It was, you know, this whole, it was an iterative process of, digging deeper and deeper with every kind of month about I was not going to leave that place so I knew as best as I could what it was that was missing. So through that whole journaling process, which, by the way, I thought was, like, totally bogus. <laughs> you know, Latinos, Latinos don't go to therapy, so when... Oh, like, I'm a big like, proponent of therapy. What? I know, yeah. You know, like, she was like, you're doing what? And I was like, she's like, you're going to go talk to a stranger about, like, all of our family issues? <laughs> My parents were so confused about why I need to go to therapy when I, like, grew up here and they grew up in war-torn El Salvador. But the answer is they need to go to therapy, too. (laughs) Right. I feel like everybody needs to go to therapy um, at some point. But, yeah, so through this, you know, I thought the whole writing thing, I was like, what am I going to write about? Like, a diary? And she'd say, no, just just (laughs) don't judge it. You know, and at this point, you're a lawyer, so you only have to think one way. Yeah. In many ways. And you're kind of, like, channeling everything you do in your life through that one lens. Um, but through it, what sort of started 
becoming really apparent was that the le- the satisfaction that was missing was that there was no creative element for me in law. Mm-hmm. And I had really, because I was not a conventionally creative person, meaning I wasn't an art major, I wasn't a photography major, I wasn't a music major, I had, you know, sort of figured out through my career that, um, that I was never meant to be doing any, like anything that was truly creative. But that's what I was missing is that there was no sense of real self-expression and creative like outlet in writing bankruptcy briefs as much as I wanted there to be that in there. There was not that in there. And once I had that realization, it was a huge aha moment because I knew that I was like grasping for something to hang on to that, that, clicked and that really clicked for me um it was kind of one of those things where it was like oh okay so this is what's missing can I find this type of creative like outlet within law and maybe not here but somewhere else you know that was kind of the second part of the inquiry but ultimately you know with that and then some it was I don't I'm not connecting with people in this particular job um I miss that. I need that in my personality. I, f- I found law to be rather isolating at times because yeah, you just have a computer. Mm-hmm. And um, and so little by little, I kind of, you know, I started really without judgment, allowing myself to gravitate to things outside of work that um, that I enjoyed. And. You know, you have such limited free time. So, again, I did this privately because I didn't want other people's opinion, my mother's or my grandmother's or whoever, to color this experience. But, you know, I was needlepointing. I'm going to have, like, a half a dozen half-completed needlepoint pillows at this point. Um, <laughs> from those days, I was baking a lot. Like, I love to bake, you know. And, and so it was all these things that I was just starting to observe. Like, what am I drawn to naturally when mm-hmm. I have free time? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I kept coming back to that had been operating behind the scenes this entire time was makeup. Um, it was like something I really enjoyed about my morning ritual. I took a lot of pride in it. I was a total makeup junkie. I was watching a lot of how-to videos on my free time. But I'd been that way since high school. Mm-hmm. This was like nothing new. But I just had never taken a real deep look at like what what it was about makeup that I was enjoying and um and that was kind of like one of the dominoes that started falling that ended up with me starting to do research and I investigated a, a bunch of different things but that was one that I kept coming back to and I think there was like a profound sense of connection to my culture to my mother to my grandmother to um you know, my cousins, there's just a lot around Latinas and, like, our association with beauty and rituals that was very comforting for me. And it was something that, in spite of leaving home to go to college, I never let go of, right? So I was, like, that girl that would walk around Kansas and people would say, do you have an interview today? Why are you wearing lipstick? And I'm like, because that's what we do. Like, I don't know, you know? Mm-hmm. And so... It was really important. It turned out to be, like, a part of my daily life that um, was meaningful in very, like, profound ways from heritage reasons to 
who I believed I was as a woman and why I thought that ritual was really important to maintain. I'm so inspired hearing your story because I, I feel like it reminds me so much of things that I've gone through recently of finally allowing myself to really investigate what I enjoy doing naturally and of aside from expectations from my family and aside from kind of these things that I've internalized from my childhood of needing to constantly prove the people wrong who were who I felt misjudged me or uh, underestimated me my whole life um, and I, I think a lot of my a lot of the things that I've done up until now have been kind of reactionary to that just chasing the gold star so that I can say see you shouldn't have underestimated me because I got a gold star and it's so refreshing to hear that you establish yourself as a bankruptcy attorney but then realize that you had this true passion and went for it right and I think that you know I think it's very common in minority groups and women in particular to always be chasing the brass ring. But I think with time and with age and with wisdom, every brass ring that I like went for and got the charge or the sense of completion or the sense of self-satisfaction that I expected to get never came. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so then it's like, okay, I got this one. Where's the next one? Right. And it was exhausting me. It is. I was Mm -hmm. absolutely exhausted. I was exhausted from trying to keep up with that and and this this pattern of it's never going to be enough, right? Because yeah. that was eventually, I think, one of the realizations I had is I could go win a Nobel Peace Prize right now. It's not going to be enough. There's right. going to have to be something around the corner to keep proving myself. And at what point do you stop and say, you know what? It is enough. And it's enough because I say it's enough. Mm-hmm. That's and, so powerful. And so, and so that for me, you know, and being at a big law firm, it's never enough. Mm-hmm. And that's like, you know, you almost like walk in, you self-select into that environment. Right. It's, that's At that age, that's where I felt comfortable. I spent my whole life reaching for the next and the next and the next. And so, of course, naturally, I find myself in a work environment where you get like a treat, like a dog for overachieving and overperforming. And then, but then there's something next. Right. And it's, an, it's never going to be enough. <laughs> like life and, but it also, in doing that, it's almost like an addiction, right? Like, yeah. I've become really addicted to overperforming everywhere. Um, and it was an addiction that made me feel like I was, because it was productive and because I was working on things that were on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, um, you know, God, good for me. But it really, at the end of the day, was a type of addiction that, like, was never, there was going to be no amount of work drug or accolade drug that could like dampen down the anxiety of not being enough and I think and I think that's a very vicious circle and one of the things that also started happening at the time that I was doing all this is I started having a lot of physical ailments surrounding the amount of stress I was under Mm -hmm. and the amount of self-imposed stress I put on myself Mm -hmm. Um, and when the physical symptoms started appearing it was a huge, like, awakening for me of, like, mentally, I may never get to the, it's enough, but physically my body is sort of saying, it, we're telling you right now it's enough because we can't take it anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, and it was, it was a tremendous wake-up call, and I, and I was, 
I was so disassociated from my physical health at that point that I didn't even notice. One of my best friends like took me to dinner one day and said, I am really worried about you. Oh, wow. Like, your hair is falling out. You don't look good. You haven't slept. And, you know, and she was kind of, had seen this whole trajectory and was just like, this, this is not right. It's not good. And I was like, what are you talking about? Mm, it's so important uh, to have friends like that. Yeah, and so... I think I had to like make a decision that I a, had a right to change my mind and that that was okay and that there were going to be a lot of people that I really loved and had supported me to this point that I was going to have to disappoint and I was going to have to be okay tolerating that because yeah. it was never going to be easy and it was going to be really um, scary for me but I was going to have to just learn to tolerate how uncomfortable that feeling of I don't know, maybe it's rejection, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, how dare, there was a sense of like, how dare you? <laughs> you know, how dare you take this amazing opportunity and say no to it? I, mean, I think this but, is a really important message. Like, you are the person that needs to wake up every day and go to work, not your family, not yeah. your peers. And I think that once, you know, you, like you said, you should like your work at least more than 50% of the time. Right, and there's, there's just so much we, we talk ourselves in and out of, and I think it, it's compounded by uh, being like a, a pretty decent lawyer because you learn how to argue both sides of anything. <laughs> but it's really not, it ends up that it's not an intellectual exercise. Mm-hmm. Right, it's really an emotional, spiritual exercise. Yes. Of... I think there's this other sense of just because you're really good at something, that's what you should do. And I think you probably know a lot of people, and I know a lot of people, myself included, that are very confident lawyers. Mm -hmm. But just because you're good at that doesn't mean that that's what you should do. Yes. Maybe it's better to love something you're terrible at, but you're getting so much joy out of trying to be good at that. And that's, that's like part of the, you know, I found that that to be true at Yale. Everybody was sort of gravitating to where they felt they could excel the most, and nobody ever really stopped and asked, like, but is this what I really enjoy? Right. Right. So this has been amazing. I have one last question that I wanted to ask before I let you go. I don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, I read that you wanted to make sure that all Latinx identities feel represented in your makeup line, and currently it appears to be very Mexican-centric. So I wanted to, as a Salvadorian woman, being represented is very important to me. And so I wanted to ask how you plan on um, developing the line further in that regard. Yeah. So that was very important to me, too, because as you probably know, everybody tries to paint us with a swan broad brush and... What I really tried to build into the makeup line was the ethos of the makeup line is something I feel all Latino share. And I have friends from Ecuador and Peru and Cuban backgrounds and Venezuelan backgrounds and all sorts of backgrounds. And I really tried to build during that day around the ethos that we are all, you know, women that hold on very strongly to our fierce femininity. That's very important to our sense of self as women. Mm-hmm. Um, but also have all of this other texture and duality operating under the surface and above the surface as well um, that we also always need to kind of give life to. Otherwise, we, we feel really pent up. So 
that I felt was a message and a feeling that we could all grab onto. And still, under that umbrella, there's ways to talk about and celebrate the different, like, you know, nuances within that and the different subcultures within this larger feeling. Um, so when I when I started the line, and it's still relatively new, I did everything kind of with, out of my own inspiration mm-hmm. as, you know, a Latina with my Mexican background because I was not going to go and do something that felt very Cuban or El Salvadorian or that is Wayland without being from there because I don't think that that's authentic. Right. And so the way, you know, that has been built in is that we are, work, what we work with currently, you know, on Instagram and things like that, allowing people from different backgrounds to bring kind of their own sass and attitude and personal heritage to the line and talk about it. And then we are working on products and collaboration with influencers and women who come from different backgrounds so that they can speak to it, they can create it. Yes, it's done under, under the umbrella of the line, but there's a voice behind it because only they can really speak to, you know, that message authentically in a way that I cannot. And so I'm not going to be the voice for everyone. I'm only the voice for what I know. Right. So that's sort of the plan. But, you know, I'm a small business, so it's just a little bit of a baby step situation and kind of building relationships with different women from different backgrounds that I'm, you know, getting to know through the experience of having this this company and I'm being exposed to women from all over the world, all over Latin America, all over the country. Um, and there's a lot of like blending that's going on too that I think it's really important to speak to as well because I think people feel that once, you know, they're half Venezuelan, half something else, that, you know, there's a dilution that happens and it doesn't really because culture is culture and you you are going to embrace one or two cultures or three cultures that are part of who you are and some with more force than others, but it's still very much part of who you are. And I don't, I never want, you know, I feel like there's a lot of shaming within the community regarding, for example, language and your fluency in Spanish. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's entirely fair. No, yeah, it isn't. You know, so, so yeah, I want to, I want to make sure that, you know, women who are second or third generation that, culturally are so proudly fill in the blank but don't speak fluent Spanish necessarily um, don't feel like they're not part of this conversation because they absolutely are mm-hmm. and in particular in the business I am in because it is about female to female empowerment female to female support and you as a Latina woman I don't care what your background is are, are never going to be free from the grip of the heavy-handed female influence that we all are under um, from our, you know, from our families of origin and then the women around us who are also Latina and how we kind of are all influencing each other all the time. So, you know, that was where a lot of the name came up, right? The reina sense was the term of endearment as well of what we call each other and how we support each other um, in life as you know, my mom always used to call me mi reina, like I call my friend la reina, like mm-hmm. but I really wanted to tie that in. But yeah, that's that's the plan, but it's a slow plan and it's a, it's a long game, but I want to make sure I get it right. And uh, it's important that everyone feel as respected as I can possibly like make them feel. Mm-hmm. So. Well, that's great. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about that I didn't ask you about? No, um, 
No, anytime. I'm, I'm so excited that you guys are doing this podcast. I think it's uh, it's definitely what was needed when I was in law school a million years ago. Um, so it's good to see that um, there's like a platform to talk about some of these things now. Yeah, thank you so much. And we're very excited for the future of your makeup line as well. Thank you. It was great talking to you. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, yo, my dogs roll heat, control the whole street. And when it's time to bust, they don't.